Last Sunday night, we turned to the book of Jeremiah. I'd like to return there this evening as we continue our study of sin and misery by way of the Catechism's summary. Jeremiah 7 this evening, as we see again the Lord bringing his word to his people. And hear words of indictment against the people who refuse to hear the word of God. Jeremiah chapter 7. Read the whole chapter as we give our attention to these words. Jeremiah uh, ministered, prophesied in the, the reign of the last kings of Judah. And interestingly, he's a prophet who lived to see his prophecy come true. At least uh, some of it. Some of it had to wait the coming of Christ. But his prophecy of the judgment that would come on the southern kingdom of Judah uh, came true in his lifetime. That the Babylonians conquered them. So 100 years before this, the northern kingdom, remember... Israel had divided, and so the northern kingdom, called Israel, had been uh, demolished by the Assyrians. And now a century later, Jeremiah's warning God's people, you too are going to be taken captive, and now by the Babylonians. And uh, God's people refused to hear. Jeremiah 7, verse 1, the word of the Lord. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word, and say... Hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah who enter in at these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. Do not trust in these lying words, saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. For if you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if you thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, or walk after other gods to your hurt, then I will cause you to dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Behold, you trust in lying words that cannot profit Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, and walk after other gods whom you do not know, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered to do all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of thieves in your eyes? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, says the Lord." But now go to my place which was in Shiloh, where I set my name at the first, and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. And now because you have done all these works, says the Lord, and I spoke to you, rising up early and speaking, but you did not hear. And I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore I will do to the house which is called by my name, in which you trust, and to this place which I gave to you and your fathers, as I have done to Shiloh, and I will cast you out of my sight, as I have cast out all your brethren, the whole posterity of Ephraim. Therefore do not pray for this people, nor lift up a cry or prayer for them, nor make intercession to me, for I will not hear you. Do you not see what they do in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers kindle the fire, and the women knead dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. 
and they pour out drink offerings to other gods, and they, that they may provoke me to anger. Do they provoke me to anger, says the Lord? Do they not provoke themselves to the shame of their own faces? And therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my anger and my fury will be poured out on this place, on man and on beast, on the trees of the field and on the fruit of the ground, and it will burn and not be quenched. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat meat. For I did not speak to your fathers or command them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices. But this is what I commanded them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. And walk in all the ways that I have commanded you, that it may be well with you. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but followed the counsels and dictates of their evil hearts, and went backward and not forward. Since the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day, I have even sent to you all my servants the prophets, daily rising up early and sending them. Yet they did not obey me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. Therefore you shall speak all these words to them, but they will not obey you. You shall also call to them, but they will not answer you. So you shall say to them, This is a nation that does not obey the voice of the Lord their God, nor receive correction. Truth has perished and has been cut off from their mouth. Cut off your hair and cast it away, and take up a lamentation on the desolate heights, for the Lord has rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath. For the children of Judah have done evil in my sight, says the Lord. They have set their abominations in the house which is called by my name to pollute it. And they have built the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my heart. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when it will, be, when it will no more be called Tophet or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter, for they will bury in Tophet until there is no room. The corpses of this people will be food for the birds of the heaven and for the beasts of the earth, and no one will frighten them away. And then I will cause to cease from the cities of Judah and from the streets of Jerusalem the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, for the land shall be desolate. We'll end our scripture reading there and take out the forms and prayers book, if you would, to Turn to page 204, 204 in the Forms and Prayers book. Lord's Day 4, just before this, the question was asked if we're so corrupt that we can't do any good and we're inclined to all evil, and the answer was yes, unless we are born again by the Spirit of God. And then question 9 says, but doesn't God do man an injustice by requiring in his law what man is unable to do? And the answer, the biblical answer is no. God created man with the ability to keep the law. Man, however, at the instigation of the devil, in willful disobedience, robbed himself and all his descendants of these gifts. Then the question, will God permit such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? Certainly not. 
He's terribly angry with the sin we are born with as well as our actual sins. God will punish them by a just judgment both now and in eternity. Having declared, cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the things written in the book of the law. And then finally, but isn't God also merciful? God is certainly merciful, but he is also just. His justice demands that sin committed against his supreme majesty be punished with a supreme penalty, eternal punishment of body and soul. So we confess on the basis of God's word. Let's bow before the Lord and ask his blessing. Oh, gracious God, we pray for your help tonight. You've spoken strong words to your people, and you've done so in love. And we pray that you'd minister your truth to us, that we would not be self-deceived, but that we might find our refuge in the Lord Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Well, if you're in a courtroom setting and you're the defendant, then the prosecutor is not your friend. The prosecutor is not your friend. He's going to bring charges against you. He's going to rebut your explanations. He's going to cross-examine you. He's going to put you under the fire and try to make you look bad, right? It's different with God, isn't it? The prophets of God were prosecuting attorneys. They came with the law book of the Lord and they said to God's people, you have not kept the law of your covenant Lord. God was rising early and sending prophets, he said. But God did it in love, did it in mercy. He did it to seek his people, to turn them to his salvation. And we should remember that as we come to Lord's Day 4 tonight, because now we're at the third, the third Lord's Day, the third set of questions and answers about sin and misery, right? And we might say, do we need some more about sin and misery? And, and the answer really is, yes, we do, because it's hard to humble us, isn't it? When the prosecutor comes against us, we we tend to twist and squirm and evade and make excuses. And God has to keep hammering and hammering by his law to shatter the heart. We make protests in our pride. We try to out-reason God. If you listen to the the questions of Lord's Day 4, you can hear behind him the kind of objections that we hear in the world and the kind of objections that we often hear in our hearts Trying to make excuses, trying to, to say we're not, we're not guilty. You're trying to say, God, you're the guilty one. You did it. But each answer to the catechism based upon Scripture is bringing us the truth and the logic of Scripture to, to defeat that, to shatter our pride. And if God will give us his Holy Spirit, then we see again our need of the Lord. It's remarkable in the word how far God goes, isn't it? to bring us to see our sin. If you read across the pages of Scripture, how often isn't God trying and trying and trying and convince us of our sin? From the beginning, the first sin, when God comes to Adam and Eve, and he has to prosecute the case against their evasions, to the the New Testament, and the Corinthians making all their excuses across all the pages of Scripture, God has to keep, and he's willing to keep on to bring us low that we might know our need of the Lord Jesus. And God tells his people plainly in Jeremiah 7, you trust in lying words. Here you are saying, we've got the temple, we're safe. What's God going to do, destroy his own house? We've got the temple still, we're fine. In Isaiah chapter 28, 
God accuses his people of saying this. Isaiah 28, we have made a covenant with death. It will not come to us, for we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood we have hidden ourselves. This is what all sinners are prone to do, to seek refuge in lies. And God comes and he says, don't trust in lying words. Don't trust in the false prophet saying, peace, peace, when the enemy is on its way. Don't trust in those flimsy fig leaves. They hide nothing. And God in his grace uncovers, uncovers us. So tonight, let's be glad that God loves us so much in Christ that he drives us to the Savior. And God loves us so much in Christ, he doesn't let all of our excuses become our refuge and hiding place. Because that would be worthless. It would be worthless. It would be a worthless shelter. God in Christ proclaims justice and truth that we might be saved. Let's look tonight at the truth summarized in Lord's Day 4 and notice that there's really three excuses that, that are being dealt with. And the first one is the excuse that it's not my fault. I can't help it. You'll notice the, the logic of the catechism here that no sinner does Lord's Day 3 in by proclaiming that we, we can't do any good. We're born in sin. We're corrupt. And then the next question is, well, if that's the case, if I can't do righteousness and God keeps demanding righteousness, well, surely that's an injustice. How can God require of me what God just said I can't do? Maybe you've had an unbeliever respond with that kind of logic to you. You point out their sin, and maybe you tell them that they're dead in sin until the Spirit gives them new life, and so they can't obey, or they can't come to Christ unless God draws them. And they say, well, there it is, then, then God can't hold me accountable. You just said it. I can't do it. You just said it. Well, we do that too sometimes. We think that our sin nature is our perfect alibi. I have a sin nature. What more could God expect from me? And so we, we want to accuse God of being unjust, right? Like demanding that a, a paralyzed man get up and run a marathon. That's crazy. How could God demand these heights of justice and truth when he knows that I am a sinner? And so we tend to excuse ourselves. And maybe the thief says, well, I know I've stolen a few things, but hey, you gave me a stomach and it needs food. And the sexual immoral says, hey, but you made me a sexual being and I have these urges. And the gossip says, well, you, you gave me a mouth, you put me around people, and we're always talking, and you know I have a hard time not saying things. And the angry person says, well, yeah, but, but I, have a, I have a temper. You know that, Lord, it runs in my family. And it all sounds a little bit, as somebody said, sounds a little bit like the reckless driver that gets pulled over and says to the police officer, well, of course I'm driving the wrong lane. I'm drunk. I'm drunk. I was born this way. That's the frequent response. Well, before we look at the catechism's answer, I think it's noteworthy that we are often those quite consumed with justice when it comes to our own rights, but not nearly as concerned about justice when it comes to the person we injured, and not nearly so concerned about justice when we think of the holy God who created us for his glory and does not receive from us what he's worthy of. What about the justice of God? And secondly, we should remember that though the excuse is often, well, I can't do it, I just can't, that's not the full answer. The full answer is I can't do it and I don't want to do it. 
Because the law of God really just had one command. Love me. Love me with everything you are, God says. And if we say, well, God, I I can't love you as I should. You know that because I'm a sinner. The Bible says, no, it's not just that you can't love God, but that you don't want to love God. Romans 8 says the, the heart of sinful man is hostility towards God. 2 Thessalonians 2 speaks of unbelievers as, quote, those who have not believed the truth and have delighted in wickedness, taken pleasure in unrighteousness. And you see that the hardened hearts of Jeremiah's day will give birth to the hardened hearts of Jesus' day. And Jesus, when he confronts the hardened Jews in Jerusalem, will not say, you know, well, yeah, I know you can't do it. What will he say? Matthew 23, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not able. You were not able? No, he says, but you were not willing. You didn't want my salvation. You didn't want me. You didn't want to love me. And the catechism goes further here, doesn't it? When it answers, does God do man an injustice by requiring in his law what man's unable to do? No, God created man with the ability to keep the law. That's what we saw in the previous Lord's days, that God made us good in his own image and true righteousness and holiness. It was our delight to serve God. It was our ability to obey God perfectly. We were perfect. And we threw it all away. Not by some accident, but by willful rebellion, as Adam ate of the forbidden fruit and did the very thing God said not to do. Someone, I think it was R.C. Sproul, compared it to to God as a, a master gardener who creates a servant and he puts him in his garden and he gives him a hedge clippers and he says, I want you to have this whole hedge trimmed by 5 p.m. tonight. And by the way, I want to warn you, in love I warn you, there's a deep ravine in the back of the garden. Don't go, don't go near it. And as soon as the master gardener leaves, the, the servant throws down the clippers and runs straight for the ravine and jumps in it. The master gardener returns and says, how come the hedge isn't trimmed? And he replies, well, how did you expect me to do it from down here? And that's the nature of our foolish excuses. God gave us everything we needed in Adam. Now we might say, well, I never met Adam. How does that apply to me? But Adam was our legal representative appointed by God, and he represented us well. We are one with Adam. Romans 5 makes that clear. In fact, if, you, if we won't confess we're one with Adam, how can we confess we're, we're one with Jesus Christ, the second Adam? If we can't confess that we are part of that first covenant, the covenant of works or creation, how can we rejoice that we're part of the the covenant of grace that follows. But you see, one writer says that we protest against the doctrine of original sin, quote, like individuals, but the Bible says that the very fact that we are able to think of ourselves as unrelated, disunited individuals presents evidence of our sinful perspective. God's revelation views the human race not as a pile of gravel, but as a giant tree. We are not pebbles thrown together, but twigs and branches on a tree all organically united. We form a corporate unity. And that's why what Adam did affects us. That's why what Adam did is what we did. That's why we're guilty in Adam. And we are the true children of Adam because we continue to sin like Adam. 
And so we have to be aware of the excuses that come up in our own hearts. And we do excuse our sin too easily, don't we? Because, well, I was grumpy because I didn't get enough sleep. We blame our spouse like Adam did. It's her fault. Or we say, well, look what that person did to me. We blame our circumstances. You gave me this lousy job, God. No, all those things, if they'd be true in any way, could present a circumstance of temptation. But they're never the excuse for sin. Sin comes, Jesus said, out of the heart, the evil heart. And it's even doubly shameful, isn't it, for the believer? Because we're remade in Christ. We are given resources in Jesus to obey. And so God requires nothing unjust when he says, this is my law, walk in it. And we should be thankful God doesn't give up his standard, right, and treat us as animals and say, you're right, you guys, I shouldn't hold you up to any standard at all. You're just, you're just brute beasts. It's not really loving when parents treat their children that way, right, and they just keep lowering the standard. Well, you can't do it. The child says, I can't do it. Okay, you can't do it. That's not very loving, right? In fact, to uphold a standard in the home is actually loving. Some would say if you uphold a high standard in the home, it makes self-righteous children. But it's actually the opposite. As you lower the standard so your children can meet it, they begin to think that they are righteous in themselves. It's when we uphold Christ's standard and say, now you did not speak to your parent or your brother in a right way. You need to repent that they learn of their sin. And in that vein, churches that don't uphold the standard of God's word do no service to the church or the world. It's a sad thing, isn't it, that many churches don't practice church discipline. Because then that suggests to everybody that the standard isn't real. And some elders might say, well, you know, they're having a hard time. It's difficult for them right now. Life is so hard. But, but you see, then they're putting excuses again in the mouths. It's not that the church has to be perfect. We certainly cannot be and are not, but the church must be a body of repentant people who see we don't measure up and we seek our life in Christ. We live in a culture of excuses. Excuses upon excuses upon excuses. But God is a God of justice and truth. God does what's right. I made you to keep my law. You refused, you destroyed yourself, you committed not only suicide, Adam, but mass murder of all your descendants. And not only that, but all of your descendants commit their own sins of willful rebellion. So the first excuse falls to the ground. What's the second excuse? What's the second excuse? Well, the second excuse is that everybody's doing it, and God must not really care. Question 10 says, will God permit such disobedience or rebellion to go unpunished, or that's the polite way of putting it. The real question is, isn't God, isn't God going to let us off? Isn't God going to forget about this? Won't he let this go unpunished? Many, many people have that idea. I mean, maybe you've met people that, that even do outlandish things. Maybe you call them out on misusing God's name from heaven and they... They look you in the face and blaspheme God's name, and then they say, oh, no lightning bolt from heaven. That's how the world lives. I don't see any judgment. Christians talk about judgment. I say to somebody at work, maybe, hey, you can't take 
can't take things from work. That's stealing. You can't lie. That's called a lie. And they say, well, what's God going to do? Send the whole world to hell? Everybody's doing this. Going to send the whole world to hell? And we assume that God is just going to be whatever our vain imagination makes of him. That he's going to think the way we think. And in this world, when everybody falls short of a standard, then you adjust the standard. You don't punish the people below the standard. And so in schools, they say there's been great inflation, right? For the past decades, great inflation that when students don't measure up, well, then we lower the standard so that they'll pass the class, move them on. Happens in society with regard to legal codes, things today that were abhorrent years ago. Now society engages in these behaviors, and so now we just change the legal code. So now it's not illegal. It's not wrong anymore. We decriminalize. Won't God do the same thing? We Christians find it easy to compare ourselves with others as well, don't we? That we think we're doing okay because we're doing as good as the person next to us in the pew or living as holy as that person. But, but the standard is never, what, it, what is my neighbor doing? What is my brother or sister doing? The standard is always God and his righteousness. That's what I'm to compare myself with. And sometimes maybe we even think, as the people of Jeremiah's day did, that because we're the people of God, we get a free pass on sin. We've got the temple the temple. We've got all these temple facilities. Surely God won't let his own house be destroyed. Jeremiah, you talk about the Babylonians. You talk about judgment to come, but we've got the temple. Is God really going to let his own house be destroyed? And what does God say? Verse 12, but go now to my place, which was in Shiloh, where I set my name at the first and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. You read Psalm 78, and it appears that in the days when the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines, that they proceeded then to Shiloh, which was about 20 miles north of Jerusalem, the place where God put the Ark and where he was worshipped before Jerusalem was established as the capital city. Apparently, the Philistines, after capturing the Ark, went and desecrated Shiloh. God says, you think I won't do it? What did I do to Shiloh? Or you think I won't bring judgment on a whole nation? Have you not looked to the north and see what the Assyrians did to Israel? Or we could point back further when the world says, what's God going to do, destroy the whole world? Actually, he already did that. All but eight people. It's called the flood. God's deadly serious. God is God. Will God permit such disobedience or rebellion to go unpunished? Certainly not. He's angry with our sin we're born with. He's angry with our actual sins and he'll punish them now in this temporary life and he'll punish them for eternity. Cursed is everyone who doesn't observe and obey all the things written in the book of the law to do them. One writer says, a God who cannot be angry stops being God. God cannot allow himself to be ignored. Sin is an assault upon his holy being. And that is why God is terribly displeased. 
kind of a God would he be? No God at all if he suddenly said, well, I, I had threatened punishment, and the day you eat of the fruit, you will die, but you know you ate of the fruit, so I guess I've got to change my law. It's not God. Wages of sin is death. It's an eternity we'll understand how severe, how real God's judgment is. And we'll perceive, brothers and sisters, the great distress that we've escaped. How thankful we can be tonight for the gospel of Christ. It's only when the justice of God is seen and the reality of punishment, everlasting punishment, that we begin to see the glory of what Jesus Christ has done for us. But before I say more about that, let's look at that final excuse. Question 11 says, but isn't God also merciful? Today it comes out a lot like this. Isn't God a loving God? People often say that. Bring up the judgment of God and so forth. And they say, well, well, I just believe in a loving God. I just believe in a loving God. It, it sounds almost pious. We're talking about God's character and they're making a profession of faith. I believe in the loving God. And in fact, it sounds as if the objector has a higher view of God than you do. You think of a God of judgment. They think of a God of love. But we don't define God, do we? God's word defines God. Just because we think God is so doesn't make him so. To think of God, according to our imaginations, has a name in the Bible. It's called idolatry. God wants to be known as he has revealed himself to us. And to ask the question, isn't God also merciful, is a tremendous insult, actually, isn't it? Could you read the Bible and ask that question? Isn't God also merciful? Hmm. Adam and Eve directly violated the will of the covenant Lord, and what did he do? He came down from heaven and promised a Savior. The Israelites in the wilderness grumbled and complained against God, and what did he do? He gave them food and gave them water and led them on. Isn't God also merciful? The whole Bible declares God is merciful. What, what parent has been so patient and merciful as God? The Bible screams of God's mercy. Every page is filled with mercy. The sending of prophet after prophet after prophet, and then his own son to call sinners to repentance. This is mercy. question really is, won't God just give up justice and quit being God? And the answer to that is absolutely not. We have trouble sometimes defending the God of justice and his right to execute justice. But we don't have so much trouble defending justice for humans. People get mad at the referee when he makes the wrong call at the basketball game. People get angry in business deals when the other party does not fulfill their obligation. Have this deep sense of justice about humans. But again, what about justice for God? 
What about the Almighty Maker, the merciful God, who's made a people for himself, who bestowed his love upon them, who gave them this world? God is merciful. The nature of mercy is that it's undeserved. Nobody can say, God owes me mercy. God owes me grace. Well, then it's not mercy. It's not grace. God's mercy and grace are meaningless apart from justice and wrath. In fact, the whole world is meaningless if there is no right and wrong. Right? You might as well hang it all up then. If there's no longer a God who who cares about right and wrong, then it's all over. This whole thing is just, is just phony. We may as well all just forget about finding meaning in life. If there is no justice, if there is no truth, then it's, there's nothing left. But the good news of God's word as we've considered these Lord's days and hear the firm word of the Lord. And God's word is firm, isn't it? He's telling his people, I, I'm going to bring destruction on you. I've warned you, I've warned you, I've warned you. You're taking refuge in lies. You will not hear the word. The land shall be desolate. My judgment is real. And it was real, wasn't it? The Babylonians came. They killed many. Carried many off to captivity. God's judgment was real. God means what he says. But God himself provides the solution for our great problem. Solution is not by God giving to us an excuse we hadn't thought of before. It's not that our defense attorney came up with a really good one. Here, use this. But it's that God sent his son, isn't it? To the cross where justice and mercy kiss. Those words at the end of answer 10, cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the things written in the book of the law. Cursed be him, damned be him. Those words are taken up in Galatians 3. And then the Apostle Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. You see, the Christian gospel is never that God changed his mind, he lowered his standard, he decided to accept your excuses. That's never the message of the gospel. If it were, then the whole cross of Jesus is meaningless. God is God. The standard holds firm. But under that firm standard, God sent his son, born under the law, born of a woman, to bear the curse that you deserved and that I deserved. Apart from Jesus Christ, you and I would undoubtedly spend eternity in hell the fire is never quenched and the worm never dies, you and I would spend year after year, century after century, under the just judgment of God. So great is our sin. And yet in those hours upon the cross, the God-man Jesus Christ, his divine nature supporting his human nature, that he might bear the whole weight of God's wrath and satisfy the complete justice of God, And be lifted from the dead to apply all that to us. That we may know and delight in the God of mercy and of justice. Praise be to God that he doesn't leave us to our excuses. Because that actually is the path to hell. 
lying words, taking a refuge in lying words, pretending that we've made a covenant with death and death will never touch us. Those are Satan's games by which he leads many to eternal destruction. But the prophets of truth, and finally the Son from heaven, proclaiming to sinners their sin and offering himself their salvation, summoning them to come and live, that's the gospel. That's the good news. And as we see that then, we may know even in our daily Christian life, as, as those who've been saved, we shouldn't be in the business of excuse-making, but we want to be quick to confess sin and to delight in Christ's righteousness. Well, if there's anyone here tonight that, that you still find your life really in excuses, and if you're honest before the word of God, you have to confess, you know, I, I'm not acknowledging my sin. I feel pretty confident in my own goodness and comparing myself to others. If you've been taking refuge in lies, tonight Jesus Christ and all of his mercy is calling you, calling you out of those flimsy fig leaves to confess that in myself I'm naked and ashamed and worthy of destruction. Save me, Lord Jesus. And he will. He does. For such a Savior, God has given to us his own beloved Son, who was cursed to redeem us from the curse of the law. Praise be to him. Rejoice this week in that. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, how we thank you that you have not left us to all of our self-deceit and all of the lies of the evil one. We thank you, Lord, that you've gone to war with the devil, and you've gone to war with our proud nature. May you and your mercy have drawn us to the Lord Jesus that we may rest in him. Oh, Father, help us not to speak the serpent's language, but the language of him who is the way and the truth and the life. And may we come to the Father through him. And may we rejoice this week that hell is not our destiny, but everlasting life, heaven. In Jesus' name, we give you thanks and praise. Amen.